From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. When it comes to infectious diseases and vaccines, there are a lot of topics that have been in the news. Lyme disease, measles, flu, and the cancer prevention HPV vaccine. On today's program, we'll get an update on all these hot topics, including the hope for a universal flu vaccine and the new age guidelines for that HPV vaccine from a Mayo Clinic expert. Also on the program, what are kidney stones and how to prevent them? And one woman's journey to weight loss surgery. All that along with the Vivian Williams Health Minute. We are fortunate, Tracy, to have back in our studio one of our favorite infectious disease specialists and one of the world's vaccine experts, Dr. Greg Poland. And you know he's got a lot to talk to us about. Usually does. <laughs> Including <laughs> why we need a Lyme disease vaccine and how to protect yourself this summer. An update on the measles outbreak as we head into the new school year as well. A progress report on a universal flu vaccine. His take on the new guidelines for the HPV vaccine. And finally, changes to the list of vaccines recommended for adults. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Boland. Fun to be here with you. <laughs> I love well, it. It's nice to have you. All right, let's start with Lyme disease. Is yeah. it true? That you could protect your dog against Lyme disease, but you can't protect yourself or your children with a vaccine? True. Um, now, how can that be? Uh, isn't that surprising? So we have had an explosion of uh, Lyme disease. It's the most common uh, tick-borne illness in the U.S. Uh, it is said that we have 30,000. We probably have 300,000 new cases a year. Is that there's right? A, there is a vaccine, as you mentioned, for dogs. <laughs> there used to be one for humans, but it was withdrawn in about 2002 due to class action lawsuits and a lot of misperceptions. Mm-hmm. Class action lawsuits. Yeah. I mean, there, there were certain individuals who thought it caused arthritis. Really? Yes. Not true. Not true. So are you working on another one? Um, I'm not, but there are companies that, that are working on uh, Lyme vaccine, in fact, now in clinical trials. And the interesting thing about the new vaccine that's being developed is it will probably protect against the types that cause Lyme disease in the U.S. and Europe. The one we had only protected against U.S.-based cases, not the European serotypes of the, of the uh, Lyme disease. A third of a million cases of Lyme yeah. disease in the U.S. every year? Yeah. Tick-borne. Tick-borne. And does... Could Lyme disease change, like the flu vaccine, we have to get a different one every year because the flu changes? No, um, the, the only thing that really has changed is some of the new tick vectors that can carry it. In fact, uh, back a couple of years ago, there was a new tick discovered that can carry Lyme disease, and it is named after the Mayo Clinic. All right, so uh, no uh, vaccine. So how do you protect yourself? Well, the only thing you really can do at this point is to recognize that when you are in brush, high grass, etc., you are at risk for Lyme disease. If you have a dog or a cat that goes outside and then comes inside, you're at risk for Lyme disease. So you need to check yourself for ticks. Ideally, you tuck your pants into your socks. You put permethrin on your clothing. You put DEET on you. And uh, as I say, when you come back in, you check you check for ticks. Those, permethrin. So let's make sure permethrin on your clothing on your and clothing. DEET on yourself. Yeah. yeah. Okay, and that'll a prevent deep, the a DEET-containing, okay. uh, you know, 
protect against mosquito bites, tick bites, etc. That's really all you can do. They are, when used strictly, they're pretty effective. The problem is nobody uses them correctly, strictly, and always. Once you get Lyme disease, can you get it again, or is it just like another disease, then you're immune from ever getting it again? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. There's lots of controversy around that. Um, but yes, I believe that you can be infected again. So you but don't get immune. <laughs> I do. I have a friend who was a great uh, and, and blood were, donor type of a guy. Yeah. And once he had Lyme disease, he could never go and donate blood yeah, again. Yeah. And so that made me think that once you have Lyme disease, it's in your system for no, good. No, that's, that's not true. And let me just qualify my answer. The okay. reason you can get more than one case of Lyme disease, so to speak, is because there are different serotypes. So again, the, the type we tend to see in the U.S. is different than what we see in Europe. So there would be an example of where you can be reinfected. If you find a tick, it's important to get it off as soon as possible? Absolutely. You want because to, the longer it's there, the more likely it yeah, could infect it's, you? It's about 24-plus hours before that tick, when it goes to feed, regurgitates into your skin, and that's where... This little uh, this little bug gets into you. I love okay, this so, conversation. Yeah, and, and so if the tick is fat, that means that he's already he's gotten had some a, blood. He's had a blood meal from he you. He might have regurgitated. Yes. Um, and how do you get the tick off? What's the best you can way? Just, just pull it off. You can take a, a tweezers and you can pull it off. You don't want to. I see do people think, do things like take a match or a lighter and try to burn it off or that they're going to touch the tick and it will release. And That's old school. You're going to hurt yourself more than the tick. Dr. Bobby Pritt has been on and she said sometimes when you do that, that is when the tick will regurgitate. Yeah, you just want to pull it off. Tweezers. And Are, you know, about 70% of people who get those tick bites will have this bullseye rash, but 30% won't. But certainly, if you see that rash, you get in for treatment right away. Other yeah. symptoms besides rash? They're pretty, you know, they're pretty vague. vague in the beginning. You can have aches and pains, low-grade fever. Later, you can have neurologic problems, nerve palsies, cardiac problems. So if it goes untreated. Untreated, right. And how do they make the diagnosis? By blood. So yeah. there is a good blood yeah, test diagnostic for, for Lyme tests disease. Done. You have to be careful, and uh, Bobby, I'm sure, would have talked about this. There are ELISA tests and there are so-called Western blot tests, and you really need to do that confirmatory test because you can get false positives. Aren't we getting better at diagnosing it? I would say that's probably true, but you have to think of it in order to order the yes, test. Yes, I guess that's what I mean. Yeah. It's not top of now, it's, mind. It's easy if you see the rash, yeah. the classic sure. rash, but... And then the treatment is relatively straightforward, antibiotics, right? In fact, oral antibiotics, if you catch it early, as opposed to later when you have the complications of Lyme disease, treating it with IV antibiotics. Okay, there you go. That's Lyme disease. All right, now let's talk about vaccines for adults, because I know the CDC makes new recommendations every year. What's new this year? One is that the um, nasal spray influenza vaccine is back and available up to age 49. They had some manufacturing problems, and CDC didn't recommend it in, in the prior couple of years. Now that's available. We've talked about Shingrix, a new two-dose vaccine against shingles. There is a new hepatitis B vaccine available for adults. only takes two doses, not three doses, and exceptionally high levels um, of immunity. I, I would say that the other thing that has changed has been uh, something that physicians will be um, uh, 
comfortable with, and that's the idea of what's called shared decision-making. So for the non-immunocompromised person over the age of 65, rather than routinely stating that they need the PCV13 pneumonia vaccine, we engage in shared decision-making to see if that is worthwhile in that particular patient. Everybody gets the polysaccharide vaccine, the so-called PPSV23, at age 65 or prior to that if they have risk factors. And the usual recommendation has been after getting PPS, that you start with PCV13 and then a PPSV23. Now that PCV13 is optional if you're not immunocompromised. And uh, what's the? Uh, this is particularly important. These vaccines for older individuals, Absolutely. seasoned citizens, because their immune system weakens as, as we yeah, get older. Yeah, it's it's called immunosenescence, and it's basically kind of a slow degradation of the immune system. Uh, believe it or not, that starts in your twenties. <laughs> By the time you know you're into your sixties and above, it's uh, it's certain that your immune system is not responding the way it did when you were younger. And we got to protect those folks. How can I keep track of all of this? It's a lot of. I mean, you just said it's an update. Yeah. I mean, there's and then just keeping track of the where you're at with your vaccinations. So, so I've got two suggestions. In okay. that. Number one is when you see your healthcare provider, one simple question. Are there any vaccines or updates that I need? Number two is go and check yourself. You can check at the Mayo Clinic website. You can check at uh, cdc.gov. And you can actually see the adult, adolescent, and childhood immunization schedule. All right. Perfect. Everybody should do it. Now let's talk about HPV vaccine because there are some new recommendations. But first of all, tell us what that is and what diseases we're trying to prevent. Yeah, this one, uh, if you ever could use the term silent epidemic, HPV would be it. HPV is human papillomavirus. Um, everybody in the U.S. will get infected with this. Everybody will get infected with it. Most all of us resolve that infection, depending on which types we get infected with. But if we get infected with the type that cause genital warts, we have no cure for that. And if you get infected with the types that cause cancer, we don't have a cure for that. But we have a vaccine that prevents it. A cancer a, vaccine. Uh, exactly. Uh, so genital warts, and these warts can also show up in your pharynx, right? Absolutely. In, your, in your throat. Absolutely. Uh, it can cause cancer of the cervix in women, cancer of the penis in men, yeah. cancer of the vulva in women, yes. and cancer of the throat in both men and so women. Almost all the oral cancers are caused by HPV, and the majority of the anal cancers are caused by HPV. Anal cancers. I forgot that yeah. one. I, yeah, why would you not get this vaccine? I, I, I Cannot answer that question. <laughs> well, tell me then, why do patients say, I'm not sure about this vaccine? Especially parents, uh, yeah. because it's recommended early on for kids, what? So the to, recommendation is you can start as early as age nine. We typically do it around 11, 12, something around there, up to age 26. What's new is because of the explosion in this, 25% of Americans have genital warts. 25%. Of American adults, with, with our men and women. Yes. And so because of this explosion, because of the unfortunate increase in divorce rates and people in their 30s and 40s kind of getting back into the dating scene and a lot of promiscuity and, and other issues surrounding this, you now have this explosion in HPV infection. So the recommendation has been 
to expand the age range up to age 45. Yeah, because when it when I first heard about it, it was the idea that you would give it to uh, children, preteens, before, before they become sexually yes. active. Yes. So now if you're up to 45 years old, yeah. conceivably you are already sexually active at that yes. point, but it still is beneficial to get the vaccine. Yes, because uh, either hopefully you have not yet been infected with one of these huh. bad types or you've only been in. So let's take the scenario, recent case I had, of a young woman who comes in and she has uh, genital warts. She's been infected. All we can do is laser those, particularly the ones in the throat. There is no cure for it. You laser the ones you, in the throat? You laser And them. in the genital region. No, you, you treat those with a, a substance that we then shine a light on and, you know, we do some different things like that. And but, you actually have clinics where these people come periodically to get rid of these warts. Because right. once you got them, they just keep coming That's back, right. right? That's right. Oh. Rare is the person that ever resolves those. Um, the young woman. Yeah. So what we did with her is said, well, you've been infected with the type that causes genital warts, but we don't have any indication because we do pap smears and we test that you've been infected with the kind that causes cervical cancer. So it's still worthwhile to immunize that person. Wow. Yeah. Unbelievable. That so, affects a lot of people. Yeah, I, I am just absolutely flabbergasted. 25% of American adults have warts, genital yeah. warts. Yeah. Ooh, that's a busy clinic. Yeah. Yeah. All right, finally, let's talk, get a measles update yeah. uh, as we head into the new school year. It's been a bad year, hasn't it? It has. Uh, you know, Tom, this is this is just mind-blowing. We have more cases of measles in the U.S. than we have had in the last 30 years, back to 1992. In 2000, measles was declared eliminated in America, and we are almost back to where we started for one reason people who are unvaccinated. Why are they unvaccinated? Primarily because of misinformation, false information about this bizarre idea that measles vaccine causes autism. Fear. It's simply not true. Yeah. It's the fear of it. Fear turns out to be pretty contagious. So what happens is people travel overseas uh, where people are not vaccinated. They get measles and they come back here and infected the people who haven't been vaccinated. Right. right. That's been one way. Uh, another way has been uh, among Orthodox Jewish communities where they haven't been um, educated or exposed to it. Once they are, they're pretty compliant with it. But you're exactly right. All it takes, because remember, this is the most contagious disease we know of. Okay. So if you're exposed to it about 90% of the time, you get it, right? Get I it. mean, that's how yeah. if somebody, virulent If it somebody is. with measles had been in this room eight hours ago and we were unvaccinated and walked in here, 90% of us would get that infection. Do, do I need to get a measles booster? <laughs> or once you get a measles vaccination, are you set? Well, yeah. I mean, the, the recommendation is that uh, people get two doses. There is a small failure rate of one dose, and that's the reason for two. And, you know, this is not a benign disease, no. right? One out, mean, of, uh, one out of a thousand people get infected are going to develop encephalitis. Three out of a thousand are going to die. That's encephalitis one of, infection of the brain, the yeah, lining of the brain. Yeah. That's one of the other uh, mistakes or misinformation that people have been taking is, oh, well, if you do get measles, you can take antibiotics and you'll be fine. No, there is no treatment for measles. All right, finally, universal flu vaccine. Give us an yeah, update on that. Is, because, this, yeah. this is really exciting. So, Hold on uh, just a second. 
Universal flu vaccine. This really is exciting. I mean, <laughs> can you think of a virus that every year causes more misery? Last year, we had 90,000 Americans die, almost a million be hospitalized as a result of flu. And we're always playing catch up, right? We, we, we decide what that should be in the vaccine by looking backwards. And by the time we get to the year, that virus is already starting to mutate. So in various years, we have decreased efficacy. The idea behind a universal vaccine is that we find a part of the virus called the stalk that doesn't mutate. Okay? So NIH is putting $140 million into basically a crash priority program to develop the vaccine. In the first phase, it's only going to protect against influenza A, not B, viruses. But A is, is the primary one that sickens and kills. And the idea is to protect greater than 75% of people for at least 12 months and move that out to 10 years. Oh, wouldn't how, that be good? One how many time. people died last year because 90, of the flu? 90,000. Wow. All right, Dr. Greg Poland, infectious disease specialist and a vaccine expert. Lots of valuable information from one of the world's best. Well, what have we learned today? Well, there's no Lyme disease vaccine. There is for your dog, but not for you or your children <laughs> yet. So you need to be tick smart this summer. Make sure your vaccinations are up to date, especially if you are a seasoned citizen. Yeah. Your immune system isn't quite as good as it used to be. The HPV vaccine, it is a cancer vaccine. And we also learned that 25% of American adults have genital warts. Yeah. Oof, not good news. Yeah. And now uh, that vaccine is for some adults up to the age 45. You 45. were supposed to talk to your doctor about that. A universal flu vaccine is now in clinical trials. Nice one and done. Wouldn't that be great? Yeah. <laughs> and heading into the new school year, the measles outbreak is far from over. Yeah. Dr. Greg Poland, infectious disease specialist, thanks so much for being with My us. My pleasure. Always, a, always good to have you. Thanks. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, tips on preventing kidney stones. And now, here's the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams for the Mayo Clinic News Network. The National Institutes of Health reports that two or three of every 1,000 children have hearing loss in one or both ears. But how do you know if your child is one of the small percentage who has hearing issues? Dr. Colin Driscoll, a Mayo Clinic head and neck surgeon, says that parents and caregivers should watch for certain milestones of development. He says kids are supposed to start babbling. They should continue to babble, and then they should start developing some words. And so if they're not doing those things, then you should test the hearing. Now, some of the other things you might notice if your child has hearing loss include not responding to your voice, not responding to softer sounds, and not reaching normal speech and language milestones. Dr. Driscoll says that most cases of hearing loss in young kids are caused by ear infections, which are treatable and reversible in the vast majority of cases. But some kids may have hearing loss that requires intervention, such as hearing aids or cochlear implants. Dr. Driscoll says if you have any concern whatsoever, get a hearing test. It's painless. They're readily available. Do the testing. And in other news, let's talk about dietary supplements and the heart. Now, which dietary supplement should you take to improve your heart health? 
Well, the answer may be none. Research published in Annals of Internal Medicine showed that many supplements do not reduce your risk of heart disease. Dr. Hassan Murad, a Mayo Clinic preventive medicine specialist, is a co-author of the study. He says there's really no supplement that can prevent heart disease at the present time. He and the research team analyzed 277 studies and found that supplements such as multivitamins as well as vitamins E, D, and B don't improve heart health. He adds that several of the interventions they used to do in terms of diet and nutritional supplements actually do not have any evidence to support them. But they did find that omega-3 polyunsaturated fatty acids found in some fish and walnuts may reduce the risk of heart attack but healthy lifestyle choices are the main preventive strategies. Murad says out of all the things they studied, salt reduction was the one thing that found they found to be most effective in reducing the risk of heart disease among dietary interventions. It reduced the risk in people who had normal blood pressure and people who had high blood pressure. Dr. Murad says regular exercise, not smoking, limiting alcohol, and eating a diet rich in fruits, veggies, whole grains, healthy Healthy oils and lean meats can reduce your risk of heart disease. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams. Kidney stones, they are hard deposits made up of minerals and salts that form inside your kidneys. Kidney stones have multiple causes and they can affect any part of your urinary tract. Your kidney, your ureter, that's that tube between the kidney and the bladder, and also the bladder. Now, they may not cause any damage if they're detected early and treated. But if stones get lodged in the urinary tract... is that like stuck? I think that doesn't sound good. Lodged, yeah. yeah. They can cause some serious problems, and they might need to be removed surgically. What treatments are there to prevent kidney stones, and is there anything new on the horizon? Here to tell us is Mayo Clinic kidney specialist, Dr. John Liskey. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Liskey. Great. Thank you very much. Good to have you. So it seems like we all know somebody who has had kidney stones, or a, at least a kidney stone. How common are they? So they're quite common. So a general number in the United States, at least, is about uh, 10% of people might have a kidney stone over their lifetime. A little more common in men than in women. Is that because we're all dehydrated, or why do these happen? Well, that's certainly a big part of it, that um, all of us uh, walk around with urine that's pretty concentrated most of the time. And so in some ways, we're all at risk all of the time. So that's a big part of it. So the, the more color to your urine, the more dehydrated you are. Correct. That's an easy way to see. Does it run in families? It does. So um, especially the, the common calcium stones, it's about you know 50% of your first-degree relatives might at least have the high calcium issue and be at risk. So yeah, very common. It's at least as heritable as things like diabetes and hypertension. The common kidney stones would lead me to think then <laughs> that there are uncommon kidney stones. What are those? So there's others, you know, the calcium is about 70 or 80%, and it's split between calcium oxalate and calcium phosphate. But then there are other things like uric acid is the other, I would say, more common one that's 5 or 10% of stones. And then rarer things like uh, struvite, which is related to kidney infections with specific kinds of bacteria. And then there's inherited forms that are much less common. Is it important to know what kind of stone you form? Yeah, so I think that's the first part of the workup. So if you happen to pass a stone or if a surgeon needs to remove it, that uh, all those stones should be sent for analysis, and that's the first step in kind of figuring out what kind of stones you have and what might be the causes. 
I would imagine that there's not an opportunity a lot where that stone passes and you just, oh, I forgot, didn't notice that I passed the stone. From what I've seen in uh, episodes of TV comedies, it's extremely painful and not funny at all. <laughs> yeah, although I, I, most of the pain is when it's passing between your kidney and the bladder. Not when you're peeing it out? I think that's kind of variable, and at least I haven't had to do it myself, so I can't <laughs> give a personal story. But I think the, the the bigger pain is usually, especially when it's in the ureter, and it can be quite excruciating. And the ureter, that little tube that goes from the kidney, and, and it's pretty small. Yes. All right, so let's talk about prevention, because obviously if you've had one of these, I'm sure you have a, a great interest in not having another one. Correct. So certainly there's a list of fairly um, sort of generic recommendations we give, especially if it's this common calcium stone. So drinking water is always number one. So we put out a certain amount of things in the urine that are uh, related to you know, sort of what you're eating and your hormonal regulation. So that doesn't vary depending on your urine output. It's really the output volume depends on how much water you drink and fluid you're taking in. So that's always number one, and that's the easiest way to reduce this concentration of urine, which is an important driving factor. Other things that are helpful are um, being lower salt intake. Uh, it turns out that that's important for calcium elimination in the urine, so being very low salt is good. Uh, lower protein is helpful in calcium stones, and then calcium intake itself should be actually normal. We don't want people to restrict that. Do you give people guidelines uh, with regard to how much they should drink? Well, we really want the urine output to be uh, two to three liters or two to three quarts a day would be the, the goal. So how much you need to drink depends a little bit also on what you do. If you're outside and you're sweating a lot, you probably need to drink a lot more. And so it's, it's a little bit variable, but really the key is how much urine you're putting out. Before we find out about this new study, tell us this myth or matter of fact. Drinking beer reduces the risk of developing kidney stones by 40%. Is that a myth or a fact? <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the 40% part I don't know. But okay. um, it turns out, yeah, that um, when we've done epidemiology, that actually that is associated with less kidney stone risk. Excellent. Is it because of the, the beer is mostly water? Yes, I, I would assume so. Is it a pure... Mountain golden, you know, what is, what is pure, pure? From the land of sky blue water? Well, yeah, yeah, okay, gotcha. Right, Tell us about this new study, the PUSH study. So this is a, a study that's being sponsored by uh, the National Institutes of Health, and so we're one of the recruiting centers for that study. And like we talked about, we do know that drinking water is a helpful thing for preventing stones. Uh, there hasn't been a, an incredibly large and uh, rigorous study to prove that, and so one goal of this is to see if we can get um, certain people to increase their water intake and then their urine output. How much will that affect their kidney stone risk? We're looking really at this 80% common calcium stone formers, the, the people we're trying to recruit. Um, and the other goal of it is really to strategies to help people drink more water. So we can tell people to drink, but there's also this issue of trying to get people to, to do it and uh, to kind of teach them how to do it. So the other goal of this is using... Uh, technology as part of it to try to improve water intake. So they have these um, what we call smart water bottles that link up to your cell phone and uh, monitor how much you drink through the day. And everyone's wow. given a target and gets feedback over their phone if they're not seeming to keep up with their target for the day. Interesting. How can people learn more about that study or think, any of the studies? Because yeah. that's not the only one that yeah. is happening. So the easiest way is we have an easy email called, it's uh, push, P-U-S-H, at mayo.edu, and that goes straight to our study coordinator. 
Excellent. Push at mayo.edu. Correct. So you've got some other studies going on. Um, and the other thing I wanted to ask you, uh, we've talked about hydration. You said diet really doesn't help that much. You don't really want people to restrict calcium who have uh, calcium stones. Are there any drugs that you can use that will help prevent kidney stones? So yeah, the um, we there's I would say three big classes that we use. Um, it turns out that uh, thiazide type diuretics actually reduce calcium in the urine, and so we use those a lot in certain patients. Potassium citrate, if we give that as a pill or a liquid, that increases citrate in the urine, which turns out to be a protection against kidney stones. And then drugs that reduce uric acid production, like allopurinol, has been used for a long time. But those uh, prescriptions are dependent on what kind of stone you have, right? Correct. And also a key part of it is, especially if you've had more than one kidney stone, people really should be evaluated, and that would include a 24-hour urine collection to see what might be going on in your particular case. And uh, the treatment really should be tailored. So which of these drugs you would choose would depend on what you saw in the urine, and how you would focus your diet recommendations would depend on what we saw in the urine. All right. Kidney specialist Dr. John Liskey, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Gastric bypass and other weight loss surgeries make changes to your digestive system to help you lose weight. And they do that really in a couple of ways, by limiting how much you can eat or by reducing what you can absorb, what you do eat. Now, there are several types of weight loss surgery, and collectively they are known as bariatric surgery. The surgeries are done when diet and exercise just haven't worked, but people have usually tried them. Or they're also done if you have serious health complications or serious health problems related to being overweight. But bariatric surgery is not for everybody who's overweight. It sounds easy, but no, not for everybody. You have to meet certain medical guidelines to qualify for weight loss surgery. It is expensive, and your insurance may or may not cover it. There are risks for the surgery as well, of course. And after you've lost 100 pounds or more, you still may have to lose heavy folds of skin that are left behind as a reminder of your former self. And that may require more surgery, plastic surgery. (laughs) Is it all worth it? Well, we know one woman who would answer that question with a resounding yes. She is Jessica Erickson, here to tell her story. And joining us is Mayo Clinic plastic surgeon, Dr. Basil Sheriff. Welcome to the program, both of you. Thank you. Thank you. Jessica, Dr. Sheriff, so good to have you on the program. And Jessica, we, we can't wait to hear your story. It's been a journey, hasn't it? It has been quite the journey, yes. When did you first become overweight, or has it been pretty much all your life? It has been the majority of my life. Basically, from 5 to 55 was overweight. It started when I was young. There was a lot of stresses in the household, and the household kind of started using food as a coping mechanism. And I think that that's what started that whole train for me. Did you try to lose weight over the years? Yeah, yes, <laughs> definitely. In the household, there was a lot of shame associated with the weight, and so my parents were very instrumental in trying to get me to lose weight as I was growing. You know, we tried every kind of diet you can imagine. Even at the age of 11, my mother put me on a 10-day water fast, thinking that that would help to jumpstart things. So there was a lot of, of really negative things as well. 
um, on my own. I lost 150 pounds multiple times. And uh, whenever something tragic would happen, I would put it back. When did you decide that you were going to try gastric bypass? That was a tough decision because for years I kind of had the feeling that that was an easy way out, and I didn't want to do that. And then one day, it was January of 2016, and I was sitting at my son's basketball tournament. Actually, I was standing there, and no place to sit. And at that point, I couldn't stand for more than five minutes. So looking for a place to sit was imperative for me, and I really had two choices. I could go back to my car and sit there, or I could manage to sit down on the tile, which was pretty humiliating in its own way. And uh, so that's the option I did. And while I was sitting there, it just came upon me and I just realized I have allowed weight to take over and uh, isolate me. You said you lost 150 pounds multiple times. How overweight were you? At my highest documented weight is 413 and a half pounds. I know I was higher than that because Mm -hmm. before that I wouldn't weigh. So you decided to go gastric bypass Mm -hmm. and when did you do that? The Monday following the weekend when I came to the decision I had to do something, I went in and immediately called, and we set up a time that I could go in, and we started documenting everything, and she said, enough's enough. So I came down here and uh, met with Dr. Kirk Kennell, and he's an amazing, very genuine person and very honest, and we talked about what my options were. And By the time then you got to surgery day, how much did you weigh at that point? Okay, so I started at 413 and a half. A surgery day, I was 337 and a half because I had made a decision that if I was going to have surgery, I was going to create the lifestyle that I was going to need to have afterwards. So I was 337 and a half on that day. By the time I made it to plastic surgery with Dr. Sheriff, I was 172 pounds. Wow. So I had dropped quite a bit of this huge amount of weight. And Dr. why did she come see you, Dr. Sheriff? Yeah, were her, was her story typical? Um, actually, Quite typical. Many patients struggle with this uh, all their lives, and uh, Jessica lost so much weight, and she was very motivated. She was ready to make a change, and uh, uh, a lot of times once patients lose that weight, uh, we'd like them to be stable for a minimum of three to six months. There may be a plateau phase where they may be at the end of their losing phase, but then sometimes they may gain a little bit of weight. So we really like to see a stable weight for at least three to six months before we make any changes in terms of uh, body contouring and uh, make sure that they're healthy, that they're not on a malabsorptive phase, that uh, their uh, labs are fine, nutritional labs are okay. So uh, emphasizing the multidisciplinary approach, we have a great team here. And uh, once we check all of these things off, uh, then we talk about body contouring. And um, there are usually many reasons uh, patients seek that. And why, Jessica? What what did you go in for? At your highest weight, you have an image of yourself. And as you're losing weight, that image is very slow to change. Um, A lot of us are stuck with body dysmorphia. So we don't see ourselves as everybody else sees us. We still see ourselves much larger. And what was it that bothered you the most? Why? What was specifically did you go to see Dr. Sheriff about? Well, when you have that type of situation, you have all this excess skin, you wind up with rashes, blisters, all kinds of really kind of crummy things to live with on a day-to-day basis. So I didn't want that. I wanted to be genuine about who I was, and I, I didn't want to live that type of life, and I definitely wanted to get rid of the medical complications. 
I would say uh, it's probably a little bit more complicated, Dr. Sheriff, than cutting away excess skin. What What is it that you do for patients? This field really has uh, sort of um, evolved tremendously over the past 20 to 30 years. Um, and with the advances in bariatric surgery, um, so did by, um, post-bariatric body contouring. So very commonly, I see patients for like Jessica mentioned, chronic rashes, uh, especially during the summertime, uh, excess moisture uh, under the abdominal skin or sometimes under the arms, sometimes on the breast. You know, the body really undergoes a 360-degree uh, change. and So uh, the skin doesn't really shrink. It just becomes very redundant when you lose the underlying fat. For the most part, it does. You know, younger patients who go through this journey at a younger age may have some uh, skin retraction, uh, so the amount of laxity they may have is not as much, but uh, especially with pregnancies and uh, uh, significant weight gain, uh, the majority of the skin stays there afterwards, and and it really becomes a burden on the patient's uh, sort of well-being and health. Uh, usually, these patients are very motivated to do more sports, and you can imagine it's pretty hard to be engaged in uh, doing more sports and staying active. The whole purpose of doing the bariatric surgery when you're uh, carrying around 15, 20-pound abdominal skin excess or under the arms or the breast being too heavy. So the body image is a, is a component of this, but also really the overall health of the patient, uh, their positive uh, sort of body image, and really staying healthy is a, is a big component of it. How many surgeries does it take to do this for a typical patient? For me, I had the paniculectomy with fleur de you know, that took care of okay, this. Okay, it's a paniculectomy. So yeah. Okay, you got to help me out. That's yeah. the lower abdominal skin. Okay, so the skin, and it was redundant. Yes. And it obviously mm-hmm. didn't like the way it looked. Yeah, that among other things. Okay, so how do, how causing do, problems. Yeah. Okay, that was the first thing that, you had done. That and how do you fix that, thing. Dr. Sheriff? So uh, typically the skin excess, you know, patients get a skin-on-skin skin sort of contact, which can cause a lot of rashes, uh, sometimes skin breakdown. We've had patients who've had actually uh, serious infections and had to be hospitalized for it as well uh, for severe cellulitis. Mm-hmm. We evaluate the patients. We address their areas of main concern first. So typically the abdomen is the number one problem for most patients. We look at how much excess there is. Uh, is it mostly confirmed? Fine to the anterior abdomen, or it is circumferential, um, goes around the entire abdomen in the back area. And um, depending on that, then we decide, uh, are we going to proceed with just a, a paniculectomy, which is removal of the excess abdominal skin, but typically a medically indicated procedure to improve the skin rashes, their dependency on those medications that are they have to apply and to avoid further skin breakdown infections. The abdominoplasty is really extending the paniculectomy a step further and removing a little bit more skin, but also toning their abdominal wall. Uh, Usually there is some diastasis of the abdominal muscles. Um, We call it diastasis recti. We um, would bring that together uh, by plication and then really reshape the abdomen to have a more pleasing Outcome. Um, All right, so we've got the abdomen taken care of. What, what was next? Well, we also did the breast at the same time. Okay. Reese and then arms? The Have those done also? Yes. We just finished that. We did the brachioplasty and torsoplasty. So, so. brachioplasty refers to the arms. So you had the mm-hmm. excess skin and yes, fatty we, tissue removed from the arms. Yes. And then what was the other thing you mentioned? A torsoplasty. Torsoplasty. And that is, Dr. Sheriff? You know, we think about weight loss as a 360 problem. And a lot of times when you lose that weight, you think about a 
circumferential really skin excess. Oftentimes it could be some skin excess just beneath the armpits, the uh, size of the breast, and uh, sort of in confluence with the underarms. So we call that, you know, a torsoplasty, right, reshaping of the lateral trunk. Sometimes we combine that with the uh, brachioplasty or the breast, depending on how we're staging the procedures. All right. Well, we are out of time, but tell us what would you suggest to someone who is considering this for themselves, both gastric bypass and the contouring? That the journey is not an easy one on either of the processes, bariatric or plastics. Bariatrics, I think a lot of people think in terms of it's you do it and it's fixed you, and it's not. It's a lifelong commitment after that. Um, the struggle with plastics was more of there's a certain intimacy in that situation. So suddenly you're exposed, and all of these areas that were very shameful to you are now things that you're dealing with, but you're having to emotionally deal with them as well. So I think it's a very emotional process. It's extremely rewarding. Um, it's painful at times, um, but it's definitely worth it. All right, bariatric surgery patient Jessica Erickson, thanks so much for sharing your story with us. Dr. Uh, Sheriff, thanks so much for everything that you did for uh, Jessica. She's obviously happy with the result, and she looks fabulous. (laughs) Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thanks to both of you. And that's our program for this week. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for joining us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice. And you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, newsnetwork.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know. And that's our program for this week. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for joining us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice. And you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, newsnetwork.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this day for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.